Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good morning, Antilts, and welcome to the 2020 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Dan Ford, and I'm a first-year MBA student at MIT Sloan. It is my pleasure to introduce today's panel, Hockey Analytics, a face-off with data. Our panelists today, starting closest to me, Dominic Moore, a former player with more than 13 seasons in the NHL, Sonny Mehta, the former director of Hockey Analytics for the New Jersey Devils, Andrew Thomas, the former lead hockey researcher for the Minnesota Wild and current director of data science for SMT, Allison Lukin, hockey writer for The Athletic, and moderating our panel today will be Michael Mobison, head of consilient, uh, consilient research for CounterPoint Global and a adjunct professor at the Columbia Business School. Our discussion today will last 45 minutes and be followed by 10 minutes of Q&A. Please tweet your questions using the hashtag DataFaceOff. With that, I'll turn it over to Michael. Thank you, Dan. Good morning, everybody. Great to be here. Um, we're going to talk about a number of different areas, including how we might use analytics and hockey to understand player evaluation, a bit on in-game strategy uh, and player development. And we'll also talk about some frictions about how to get these ideas and analytics into the actual uh, game. As Dan mentioned, I just echo welcome questions. So as those come up, please, please send those in. Um, Sonny, maybe I'll kick it off with you. Uh, you've been doing uh, work now with different NHL teams for, for some time. Um, how has the world of analytics and hockey changed in the time that you've been monitoring this, um, both in terms of the, the actual data we have, uh, the amount of resources getting applied against, and how it's showing up in the game? Um, not much. <laughs> uh, no, it's changed. Uh, you know, obviously I would say, like, the, the community of analysts themselves have gotten significantly more... Uh, technically advanced, I would say that you know that probably echoes the the same trajectory, not just in sports but big data, data science, analytics, yada yada yada. Um, obviously, data's gotten better as well. Interest in hockey analytics has has expanded, I would say, um, and so I think just because of that, the community's gotten bigger and. Um, Things have progressed. So maybe Alvin, I'll turn to you now. Um, you know, you win games when you score more goals than the other team. Uh, pretty basic stuff. Um, so as an analyst, what 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 exactly? Uh, what kinds of questions you try, do you think we should be looking at? Are there particular statistics that you find useful in trying to evaluate players and teams? Um, are we are we asking the right questions and trying to get the right answers? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the real value that we can have with any data is the quality of the question. So it's not even about the goal, it's everything that leads up to that goal. What are the behaviors? How do we put our players in positions to score in terms of the best quality of chance that they're more likely to score than not? How do they get into the offensive zone? How do they transition out of the defensive zone? So I think it's, we know the goal is what matters, we know the win is what matters, but really digging into, you know, publicly right now, we just have mainly shot-based data. 
So we might be leaning too much on that concept, and we have to look at all the behaviors that lend itself to get to that shot to get to that goal. So, so for example, things like Corsi or Fenwick are the main things. Um, and so do you rely on those now primarily because that's what you have in your toolkit? And then if you had your dream, what kinds of things would, um, would you pursue? Andrew, I have a list. <laughs> um, no, I mean, we do rely on that because that is what's public. Um, we're so fortunate that we have places like Money Puck and Evolving Hockey that are providing us with expected goal models in the public space. And so I think that we have, we have people who are doing public tracking of transitional data. I would love to see transition data. Like I said, I would love to see retrievals of pucks. I would love to see passing sequences that lead up to, to goals and shots. Um, but we have to use what we have right now. So Andrew, I know there's a big move now toward tracking data in the NHL. And NHL made a big announcement at the All-Star Game. Can you just explain a little bit what that tracking, the history of the tracking data, what's going on with that, and how it's being used? And then perhaps at some point in the future, how that might be used in analytics to help answer some of these questions. Sure. Well, one of the things I can now at least talk about more publicly, because it was in the news, is how it works. Um, there's going to be a new puck that's built with uh, some IR lights. It's a hexagon pattern on the top and the bottom that uh, can be detected by the system. There's gonna, every player is going to wear a tag that has a similar system so that you're able to track those in relative, well, the system is built so it's going to work with television. So at least up to a 60 frames per second resolution when it's all processed. So uh, I don't know how many of you watched the All-Star game, um, either the, the regular feed or the special online feed, but now you can do a little bit more just by seeing where every player in the puck actually are all the time when you've got a broadcast going. And so that's going to be built into every NHL arena right now. It'll be in every playoff venue this April. It'll be in every building league-wide as of September so that the preseason can have a, more of a burn-in period for the other teams who don't get to make the playoffs. Uh, and then as of October, whatever the first day of the season is, we'll be live completely. So it'll be a much richer data set than has uh, been current, previously available to most NHL teams uh, to this point forward. And um, it's a system that's been around for a while. It just took a while to get adopted fully by the league itself. And are there other parallels in other leagues, other um, professional leagues, do you think that, whether it's NBA tracking or something like that, that would give us some insight as to how the, where this might go? I can give you plenty, uh, if I think about it more deeply. I know that, for example, the NBA and soccer, as two sporting institutions, have now really dive deep on this kind of data. Uh, most of their data is being collected optically. So you've got a camera system that's set up to get 3D positioning of every player and the ball. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but the ball is much bigger and, and technically a lot slower than it is in hockey. And so that's one of the reasons why a, a technical solution had to come along to this. Um, to be an active tracking system had to be part of the hockey space in order to make sure everything was getting captured. Um, Dominic. Um, Um, Dominic, the, um, I'd be really curious from your point of view, what makes for a great player or a great teammate that perhaps analytics would have trouble capturing, whether that's you know, a guy on the ice or a guy in the locker room, and are there skills in your experience that you perceive to be kind of overvalued or skills that are undervalued when you actually talk about uh, getting out there? I mean, first of all, with the tracking, I just wanted to say I'm excited to, to finally see how hard the one-timers are, because we always see the hardest shot in the All-Star game, but I have a hole in my leg from a Stamkos one-timer like five <laughs> years ago, so I'm curious to see how hard that one's traveling. But uh, 
Um, in terms of, you know, it's obviously the intangibles, leadership, team chemistry, things like that are very hard to quantify. Um, you know, obviously at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the data will show what makes an effective team and what makes an effective player and all those things go into it. So you may not be able to break it down to its component parts, uh, but I think the idea of trying to uh, continue to find ways to quantify those component parts is the march of progress that we're seeing. So these guys could probably speak to that better. So than I will say one, one question is that, you know, some teams seem to be built around the idea that they're sort of bigger and more physical. Other teams seem to be a little more finesse and speed oriented. Do you have, is one of those things you think better or more valuable than I mean, or? Clearly, there's been a trend towards speed in the last, you know, seven to nine years, and you know, especially since the rules changed actually back in 2004. Um, but you know, every year is different. You know, the team that wins, they'll say they'll tell a story about how they were big and physical, or how they were fast and and skilled. And it's a league of copycats, and so every year it's a different story. So, um, and there's more than one way to skin a cat. So. It's hard to say what's more effective sometimes because it's a sum of the parts type thing. One question, maybe I'll open it up. Maybe Sonny, I'll, I'll, I'll lead this with you, but I'd love all your views on this, which is there you know, are basically three ways to, to acquire players, or build a team. You, know, you draft them, you trade for them, or you acquire them as free agents. Um, do you think that there's one of those paths that's most effective or ways to do that or, or inefficient in some way? And uh, the other question that's sort of a follow-up question is, uh, what's the latest on player projection? So if a player is playing, for example, in college hockey or juniors or Swedish league or Russian league, how good are we at projecting their NHL performance based on their prior league? Well, I'd say the first part of that, you know, there's not necessarily, to his point with the other thing too, it's, there's not necessarily one way. Um, each of those three methods that you talked about kind of bring with them various pros and cons. So I think if you're, if you're talking about efficiency only, I mean, obviously I would say drafting well, you'll get the most bang for your buck there because, you know, I mean, you're guaranteed three years at a player on entry level contract. Um, I think as far as analytics developing that side of the, the equation, a lot of it is that traditionally I'd say we've been pretty bound on what is available to us. Um, so I think as that changes, it, you know, it'll come right into line with where we are at the pro level, I would say. Yeah. So to that point, I know that, well, I got two comments now, but one, one is on the free agent side. Um, the team I used to work for made a couple of big free agent signings back in 2012 that were that have had some reaction over the last little while, especially since one of them almost got traded and there was some reaction to that too. There were two elements to that that I think are important though. One is the business side of things. Exactly. Because when the Wild made those signs, it was Zach Parisi and Ryan Suter on July 4th, 2012, um, it turned around the franchise completely just having those two guys sign. The, the, the image around what the team was changed overnight by having these two guys leap on board. Uh, ticket sales were already kind of down in the last previous few years to that. Um, uh, the fortunes, like the, apparently for like three days, there was ringing off the hook for season tickets after that. So the financial impact that a, a statement like that can make is immediate and palpable. At the same time, you had about three or four rising young stars coming up to that team at the same time who were drafted uh, in 2010, 2011 in the first and second rounds. 
who's, who are now impactful players. So clearly, like, there was a combination of that that made a big difference coming in. Um, and we're seeing that in different, because we're also seeing it both in team performance and in the box office. Um, I think owners will look at that in, in different ways as well, as how that comes along. Um, the other part was just the data side of things, like drafting is still primarily a scouting business. The data that you're able to get in the major junior leagues in Europe, uh, in college, is still very primitive. Uh, you're looking mostly at the standard score sheets of goals, assists, penalty minutes, shots taken, and if you're very lucky, time on ice. You're not usually that very lucky with that. There have been a number of companies in the last few years that have started to build reliable junior prospect databases for development that are actually getting, if you can just even start with time on ice, that alone has made a, a huge impact compared to everything else you've had before. I think when more of this stuff gets adopted more broadly, you'll start to see more people on the analytics side having an opinion that they can back up. Now, at the same time, I think it's going to take about 10 years because you don't know how someone's going to perform in, um, five years from now if you've only got one year worth of data. Mm -hmm. Right, and as Level said, are some NHL teams better than others in drafting skills based on some of these things you're talking about? <laughs> They all claim they are. I, I honestly don't know. It's tough to say just because it's so, you only get seven shots a year, two of those at best. If you get two NHL players out of a draft of seven, that's a good year. Right. So just the uncertainty there is, is tremendous compared to football or baseball where you're going to get a much larger yield, hypothetically, although football for sure, because you're, you're playing almost the next year, whereas hockey, you're, if your player is playing the next year after you're drafted, they're a superstar. It usually takes... I think the difference is in the NHL, you're drafting them younger. And, you know, in, in the other sports, you're drafting well, them later. You've already got a, you've got a longer runway. Yeah. Basketball's drafting young, too. Yeah. Although, at least they're 19 there. It's, you're getting a year on that. Uh, college. And, and, of college. And you're also not getting a minor league system as good. I mean, there's the G League. Precisely. But, yeah. Allison, anything you want to add to that or any thoughts you have? Or? No, I think Andrew's point, though, is, is the most significant is that we have to use our eyes more so than ever with prospects because we don't have data. I mean, if you, if you go to a college game, if you go to an AHL game, the limit of what you're getting and the limits to how it's even being captured in the first place are so unreliable. And, and back to what we talked about before, the only translatable variable you have is goals, again. So we're back to this points focus where we're missing so much more about what a player can be, is, will be, can sustain over time. So I want to shift a bit into uh, in-game strategy. And, you know, in basketball and certainly in baseball, basketball with, you know, the three-point and going to the rim, baseball obviously with shifts and other things, we've just seen huge changes in how the strategy of the sport. I mean, basketball has been a watershed change in 15 years. So I'm curious, first, what changes have there been in hockey? But much more importantly, um, do, are there changes you would anticipate will happen going forward, ways to play the game differently to be more efficient, more effective, and ultimately win. So maybe, Sunny, I'll start with you, but I'd love to get all of your views on this. If you, if you, where's this thing going to go? That's what you get for being away and keep getting teed up. <laughs> uh, so have things changed? Yeah, I do think they have. I mean, I think sort of the intentional or unintentional response to the Corsi phenomenon <clears throat> has been that people are aware of it. You know, players are aware of it, coaches are aware of it, GMs are aware of it, fans are aware of it, and I think it has somewhat influenced uh, what we're seeing on the ice, for better or worse. I'm not necessarily saying that that's good or bad. Could be a little both. Um, and I, uh, yeah, so I think the same thing will happen going forward as, as we learn different things with, with the data, whether it's about, you know, uh, pre-shot movement of a 
particular kind. Um, I mean, there's there's a host of different things, you know. And I'd actually be curious to hear, like, if you throughout your career saw sort of specific strategies change or or get fashionable, so to speak. Uh, yeah, I I think as a player, it's hard to know where it's coming from. I, I still think, for the most part, the trends in the systems come from the League of Copycats, where a certain system seems to work. It's now measurable more than it's ever been in terms of, you know, possession stats and whatnot. But, um, you know, maybe now more so than it's been in the past, you know, the data is actually driving the system's decisions. But that's something I probably can't speak to. Yeah, I think, too, like a, a great example is in Columbus, John Tortorella really wanted to activate his defensive back end when he got Zach Wierenski and Seth Jones, two very talented defensemen. And so he asked the team's front office to develop a metric to measure how much the first play by the defense is north-south versus a D-to-D pass. And so he's measuring that. He's communicating that with his team. It becomes part of their language. It becomes part of their approach. He's done the same thing with exits and entries, whether they're controlled or uncontrolled. So I think it's probably a little more team-specific. But we are seeing coaches and front offices define a strategy, measure to a strategy that what gets measured gets done, and see if it works and adapt accordingly. Dominic, I do want to come back. I'm not going to let you off the hook that easily on that. I mean, if you, did you find different systems more effective than others? I know you've mentioned a number of times the copycat league, but were some systems more effective than others just in general? And, and I mean, some probably may have suited your style more than others, but did, were they more effective? And then the second question is, how are the coaches evaluating you on how well you, you do what you're supposed to do within the system? Like, how does that actually work? Wow, that, I mean, that's, it, that's it more, a multifaceted. Uh, I mean, I think subsystems are, are, I think, more effective than others, but at the same time, it's how effective you play that system. Right. You can't just say, go play this system and then expect it to be, expect it to work because, you know, the personnel is different. You know, some players are more able to play a certain way than others. You know, the way the players work together is different. The way the system is coached is different. How effectively it's coached is different. So to answer that question is, is not so easy. Um, what was the second part of the question? Being evaluated. Were you ever judged? Oh, being evaluated. You're constantly being evaluated. Um, you know, Obviously, you're being evaluated as an individual, but also how you fit into the scheme and strategy that you're trying to do. But it comes down to the old Patriot slogan, which is do your job. Exactly. And so uh, that's what I always tried to focus on as a player. So I'm going to open this up to everyone. Maybe I'll start with you, Andrew, though. Um, are there any conventional wisdoms in hockey? So we have these things in baseball about, you know, People walking used to be not cool, and stealing bases was cool, and now those things aren't so cool. Mid-range jump shots were okay in basketball, now they're not cool anymore. Mm -hmm. Are there any conventional wisdoms that you think will be overturned in the next few years as we apply analytics more rigorous to, rigorously to what's going on? So I'm going to think historically here, because the biggest one that I've looked at personally and talked to everybody, everybody else about is pulling the goalie. Because this is something that people looked at well before now. People in the 1970s said, you should be much more aggressive in pulling the goalie. And for a long time, it, one minute was about the cutoff to that. And then it started to creep up a little bit, but because largely because Patrick Waugh went, went a little nuts and decided, I'm going to go through a, uh, pull the goalie at 2 minutes and 30 seconds. Which, by the way, statistically pretty great. But when you asked him his reasons, I just felt like it. I think literally was a quote from him on this. So when he started doing it, it gave license to other teams. Okay, maybe it's okay. Maybe we can do it. Because the idea of seeing 
to be different from everyone else who's strong. That if you're going to fail that way, you're responsible. But if you fail like how everyone else fails, it's fine. So we got a point where it was increasing, and then it probably stabilized a little bit around the 145 mark, maybe not as far as everyone else would like. Part of the reason for that is you don't train, if you're used to the one minute cutoff, you're only training one group of players to go out there. You're only a six on five unit, the five, uh, either the six to, to run it for sure. You're only usually training your best players to be out there and to run out the clock with them. If you're extending it to a three minute mark, you now have two units you have to be responsible for, and coaches don't want to get burned on that. So they have to be able to overcome that and, and rejigger their practices to make that work, let alone everything else. So those kinds of changes that are going to happen, first of all, they're going to happen when people feel comfortable to fail differently. And second, they're going to happen when you actually take a valuable resource, which is practice time, and put it into this application. I think the shoot, even training at three on three in the shootout still get underappreciated no matter how much volatility they've got within the game. So before we even get new data, let's catch up with the, what the old is saying. Alison, anything you have on that, on, on sort of these um, conventional wisdoms? Um, I mean, I think we're seeing little ripples in things. The, the flip side, of course, is there's data saying if the net's empty, shoot for the empty net. Who cares about the icing? Go for it, because the probabilities will usually be in your favor. I think we're also seeing, and we're still at that point of descriptive or predictive on this, but special teams play particularly on the penalty kill side. You know, the, the idea used to be lockdown, protect, shut down. Now those units are becoming so much more aggressive. Power kill. We love it. Hashtag power kill. <laughs> um, but uh, I think special teams, we often discard that again because the sample size is so, it's not the majority of the game. So are we missing a margin to maximize because we discarded it too easily? How about penalties in general? Has anybody done really good work on uh, penalties and penalty drawing as, hmm. as a source of... Uh, contribution? I mean, we've included it uh, in models. I don't, it depends on what you mean by depth of research, because there's plenty of models on when penalties get taken. There's papers out there that say, yes, even up penalties exist. Yes, score matters. Yes, home matters. But what can you do with that? You're just aware of it. So in terms of telling your players, don't take so many penalties, damn it. <laughs> it I mean, you can yell it, but it's not really going to work. Uh, unless you're saying keep your stick down or something a little more constructive than that. But then you're still trading something off if you're not playing as aggressively with that. So part of the problem with studying it is we don't have a lot of the negative cases. We only have the positives. We don't know when penalties aren't being called without a much more extensive study. I want to open up another question, but it's, it riffs off something you mentioned, Andrew, a moment ago, which is um, it does seem that I mean, hockey is a game with a lot of luck in it. And whenever you have any system with a lot of luck, you have to focus a lot on process versus outcomes, especially short-term outcomes. So the question broadly is, um, do we have an issue with outcome bias in general in hockey? And how do we get from all, all the way from the front office to the coaches to the players, how do we keep people focused on process as a way to, uh, to lead to longer term success? I'd say yes, and it starts with the owners. Owners are, are, are there's a mantra that keeps being passed around that I understand but can't stand is this is a results based business. And as much as I hate that, the truth is a lot of revenue comes from playoff games. So already, if you're trying to get to the playoffs or not, you're going to get a lot of blame or credit just for making it that far, because a lot more money is going to come in at that point. That bias then starts with ownership demanding on occasion. You know, maybe there's a patience to be had there, but it's a much longer term process for that. I think the more people understand that it's a longer term thing and that you can handle the occasional blip, that might go down, but it's not really going to go down when the volatility associated with playoffs is so huge in terms of that return. Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, <clears throat> it's a 
good point about the owners. I was going to, you know, to your point about outcome bias, Michael, um, I mean, life has outcome bias, right? I mean, everything we do is like, there's a process and then there's a whole ton of randomness surrounding that. And so, sports is no different. And, you know, actually, in my opinion, I think sports is somewhat better than a lot of other things because at least you still have to play the games and at least there's like recorded logs of what happens in the games, whereas that's often not true in other things in life. Um, there's only so much you can do. I mean, I can say this as a professional, former professional gambler. Exactly. You know, um, there's times where you know, you know, I mean, I can tell you I had weeks and weeks stretches where I was doing everything right and losing and it messes with you emotionally. And humans are like that, you know. Um, I think all we can sort of do is do our best to, especially if you're in a position of leadership like an owner or a general manager um, or a coach, to just force feed it that we need to focus on what's important and have a good system of, of evaluating and separating process from results and just focusing on it as much as you can. Dominic, I'd love your take on this too, because as a player, sometimes you feel like you, know, you, have, you, have, you get good shots, you get good looks, the pucks don't drop. Other times you take, you know, it goes off some guy's skate and you score a bunch of goals that shouldn't happen or whatever. How do you, how, how, how do you keep your psyche level as you go through those ups and downs? I mean, do you yeah, and are, are some guys better at than others? Well, 100%. I mean, it's, that's a dynamic that is, you know, always a part of the player's uh, process, which is, you know, you have, you know, players are streaky, they, their confidence comes and goes, their results come, come and go, and obviously as a player, you're always reminded, focus on the process, and, you know, things will take care of itself. Um, you know, I think, again, it's, it is impressive when teams win as often as they do, given how much luck is involved. You know, in, in other sports, you, you see people like Roger Federer win as often as they do. It's incredible because the amount of luck and the amount of variables that go into each outcome of every match um, are a lot. So coming out on top that often is, is really impressive. And I think the margins are smaller and smaller. And so uh, as a player, you're trying to continue to increase your margins over luck, and as a team, you're probably trying to do the same thing. I do want to ask you one more question, Dominic. Would you? Are there any rules changes you would like to see? I mean, we had the, you mentioned the penalty thing in 04, that you know, sort of the overtime and the three-on-three, -three, which is which is fun for the fans. Has been a change. It's been interesting and fun. Any other rules you think, whether it's goaltenders or um, I don't know, any any other rule change that would be fun as a player, and you think would be fun for the fans as well? Or? <sighs> On the spot, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, as a, as a player, I'm always interested in the reduction of the size of the goalie equipment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, they could go back to, you know, 70s style, uh, you know. No, I mean, that's a tough one up, off the top of my head. I do think that there's been a lot of changes, you know, with the face-offs, uh, you know, and they're constantly changing the face-offs for these incremental, you know, 10 percentage point differences. And, I don't know if that's, I think there's been a, a bit of an uptick this year. I think it's been a, and a good one. I think the offside change that they just made, I think, or, or proposing to make is probably a good one. I don't think that was ever intended to be down to the measure of a millimeter. Um, so I think that's a good a, uh, adoption on that one. So anything you guys want to add to that or? I mean, I think just back to the results-based outcomes, I think that so much of what we often overlook in this is the communication of the thing whatever it is, and there's a difference between doing something because someone told you 
and doing something because you believe in it. And I think that understanding the process and making sure everyone who's involved understands the process and understands the why allows you to commit versus just blindly flailing along and saying, oh no, now it's this, and oh no, now it's this. And I think we so frequently overlook the effort that it requires to communicate effectively. If we did that, I think the buy-in would be a lot more solid, and I think teams would be more willing to stay the course, take the blips, as you say, and to, to ultimately get to the outcome because they've done the work and everyone understands the why at the end. Yeah. I think on top of that, there's a level of trust that you have in an organization that, that either makes that succeed or not. And that comes back to the fact that hockey is, is a results-based business, but it's also a people business. A lot of the same people have known each other for decades in a lot of this, and so those trust bonds do get formed. So coming back to the process point, if you have someone you've worked with for a while and you understand, yes, we have this underpinning of, first of all, you can give honest criticism, not knowing, with, with, with process as a, a piece of that, you're going to be in a lot better position to keep to propagate that throughout an organization, not just within the, the core group, but anybody below that is going to understand, yes, this is an important thing. And I'll say to the, like, to the wild credit, I always felt like I was trusted there. And then everyone, uh, everyone had that feeling. I'm going to shift a little bit to, so I'm going to call this player development, but I'll put this under this, which is um, <coughs> age curves for players. And so the first question is, um, is it your sense that teams are pretty sophisticated understanding sort of best ages for players, degradation after certain ages, and, and their trading and um, free agency decisions. And have, has our understanding of aging curves changed? And will Ovechkin's break Gretzky's goal scoring? Put me down right now, Ovechkin's going to do it. Just because, I don't know. <laughs> I say, I say I he say, doesn't. I, I say he doesn't. Um, the easiest way to see that is free agency. You're not seeing those giant contracts anymore, but part of the reason is because teams have been clamped down, that the rules change that you could not sign as big deals. But you do occasionally see contracts being signed for players past their prime, still all the time. Not to the, the degree that it used to be, but again, that's a limitation of that. I think you're also seeing younger players getting paid more. Very, like, in fact, if you're looking at um, RF or restricted free agents who are arbitration eligible, there used to be a point where, I'm, I'm going to ballpark this, but it was somewhere around 50% of their market value above a minimum contract was what they were going to get, and now that's closer to 85 or 90. They are getting paid for those key years in a way that they were not before. That's a different thing than our teams appreciating the players younger, because that's a market force that's driving that more than anything. Um, but I think they definitely see it, and they, they realize that they're getting that value younger. They're just not able to get it at a discount like they used to be able to. And to your point, though, Andrew, is there a big differential between teams and how aggressive or not aggressive they are in understanding these uh, differences? Yeah. I say so. I mean, a lot of team, uh, teams will never sign a big free agent deal because maybe it's a philosophical choice. Maybe it's just they would prefer to draft otherwise. Uh, I think a number are, are probably scared of other contracts they've seen and decided that's not going to be us. Um, you've got organizations all over the map with, with what they're willing to do. But then again, a lot of those pressures aren't necessarily determined by philosophy, they're determined by timing. If you think you're one player away, you might be willing to overpay for that player because it's opportune, value, not because- The marginal value of the win is, is worth it. Much more. Um, Dominic, you had a very long NHL career. I'm just really curious from your point of view, how, how did you feel differently physically and mentally at, I don't know, you'll start at age 15, 25, 35. How, how did that evolve? And you, I mean, I think you felt you had the skills even in your, in, well into your 30s. Um, but how does the trade-off between sort of your mental game and your physical game, how does that flow over time? I'm probably not 
typical person, you know, the best person to answer this because I, I felt better at 35 than I did at 25, <laughs> honestly. I was, best shape of your life. Huh? Yeah, I was eating better and, you know, just, I don't know. Just so why, why do you think that, why was that though? That, that is very unusual, obviously. Uh, I think it's just, you know, there's, you know, personal preparation things that you learn along the way and uh, discipline you put into it. So I think, um, you know, but I think in terms of like, what, what I witnessed as a player, I mean, the ageism in the league is, is largely due to systemic things, which is, you know, the economics of it. And younger players are generally cheaper. Um, and then the other thing about it is a lot of teams now, if they're not a contender, they're going to rebuild. And so there's no sense in adding, you know, veteran players and things like that. So there's less jobs um, systemically for those reasons. And then Obviously, when the data comes into it, uh, you would assume that the stats say that older players tend to get hurt more often, um, and so there's more risk involved. Um, so there's a few systemic things that work against older players, but, um, you know, it's still, for me, I love seeing guys like Char still, still out there doing <laughs> what they do because, um, you know, selfishly, that makes me feel good. <laughs> do you mind if I follow up? You, when you, as you got older, did you start to play differently to avoid injury? Or did you still feel like you were playing the same way? No, I mean, you have to play the same way. Yeah. Um, if you don't play the same way, you won't, you won't be your best. And so uh, the approach would never change. Uh, it's just your, your preparation has to change. And I'm going to pick up on that just related to this. Is, I'm going to call again player development, but just even it could even go into biomechanics. Um, injury, work on injury, and injury days, and teams, players get injured, so there's obviously an age component to this. There's also probably a positional component to, to, to some degree. But um, what's the best thinking on, on injury and injury prevention and keeping, keeping the players on the ice? I am not the person to ask, having right. covered the Columbus Blue Jackets this year. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't. Voodoo? I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, diet and nutrition is something that people have tried to do to overcome that, and better gym exercises and longer-term stuff. But as far as figuring out systemic issues, hockey is not particularly as evolved in that as compared to, like, I know tennis, for example, is probably light years ahead of hockey because you have a very specific set of movements from a fixed position yeah. that you can train for in a, in a lab that you can indicate whether or not your movements are more likely to cause knee injuries, for example, or elbow problems. Hockey is probably too fluid to narrow it down to a few, but I would imagine shooting motions might be one, uh, how you skate. A number of those patterns are probably out there, mm -hmm. but they're probably a lot tougher to do in a, in a lab situation to figure any kind of prescriptive method or what you're going to do. And even if you do know that you're more likely to be injured, what does that actually change? I mean, you've probably trained at a rehab at least a couple of times to, to, with the intention of hoping that this same injury is never going to happen again, right? Yeah, I think more and more teams are doing assessments in terms of like, you know, groin, groin health and things like that because those are soft tissue injuries that come up a lot. And, the more data you gather with that, the more you can see when they happen, how they happen, and how to avoid them. And I think there's certain teams that are doing a, a really good job on that front, and you're, and you're seeing the results in terms of less man games lost due to soft tissue injuries. Obviously, blocking a Stamkos one-timer is never going to go away. Um, you know, so um, it's just trying to monitor the things you can monitor. Yeah, I, to that point, that I, I lied. I do have a thought. Um, there, are, there are teams, uh, St. Louis has done some of this, Columbus is doing some of this. They're bringing in high performance directors who are looking at the alignment of the body, the use of the muscles, the force that you're exerting through your body to pre-detect, again, soft tissue injuries. We can't, 
we can't prevent a broken ankle, we can't prevent a broken leg, but they're, they're trying to pre-read inefficiencies in how the body is moving, like you said, to say, we're going to strengthen this body part or reformulate the way you approach this motion so that then you're playing more effectively and avoiding the injury. And those, they're doing these tests on a regular basis, tracking them over careers. The players are very interested. They'll come and look at their charts. So oh, there is some work being done there. Shift a little bit of gears now, going to talk about just the philosophy of the organization, management buy-in. Perhaps, Sonny, I might start with you on this. Um, so does the senior management of the organization, really from ownership down, need to, to drive the organization to use data? You mentioned, you know, obviously we have now a lot more data. We have a lot more techniques and all this. Um, and, you know, ultimately, how does analytics, how do the analytics folks get a seat at the table? And uh, how much, again, how much variance is there within the NHL teams between uh, analytics, adoption of analytics being driven from the top? Taking the last point first, yeah, there's a huge amount of variance in, in hockey. I mean, hockey already is pretty significantly lagging compared to other sports. And I would say even within hockey, there's a large amount of variance from teams that do close to nothing, like many teams that do close to nothing, to a few teams that do a considerable amount. Um, yeah, I do think the only way it can really work is a cohesive plan from top to bottom that starts with ownership, goes down to senior management and, you know, all the way down to the bottom. It's, it's really the only way to, that it's going to work. Um, you know, you might make small gains here and there by um, having only one branch that kind of um, uses it, but to really do it right, I think everybody's got to be bought in. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the teams themselves have to um, be tasked with building this expensive technology department. I mean, I'm not saying you can't outsource certain things, but in terms of the implementation, it's got to be all the way from top to, top to bottom. But, but it has to look different, I think, in every, in every part of the organization. You know, I think we might make the mistake to say, we're adopting data, which means everyone is talking about Corsi and everyone is talking about expected goals. And I think that what we have to do is take the information that's identify the information that's important and then figure out how to make that information understandable, digestible, and adoptable to different people. Dominic and I were talking about this before. You don't go up to a player and say, let's talk about increasing your Corsi. That's just not going to work. But there's a data-driven way to have a conversation about style of play and areas of play to try and impact the strategy that you want to see done. So I think it has to be completely pervasive, but it will not look the same in every single part of the organization. I slightly disagree in that you can tell a player to increase his Corsi and he's going to do the exact wrong thing. <laughs> he's going to take an entry into the zone, take a shot no matter what it is, and skate back. Right. Uh, you do that every time, your number is going to go up, your performance is going to go way down. Um, but actually, I was thinking when talking about how something penetrates an organization, my first thought was back to video, because video is now completely saturated within every NHL organization. There's not one person in it who will not go to some source and look up what's happening through some database. Either, um, and I, hell, I still use NHL TV even when I was with the team, because it was easy enough to queue up a game. Um, but pretty much, you know, you got years back, you can pull up individual games. Uh, the fact that the technology has made that even easier now means that every single member of the organization from the general manager and even the owner potentially on down has access to this tool and it's completely non-controversial. 
that sort of thing might happen in 10 years, maybe 20, with what's happening on the analytics side of things, if it's, if it's grown in the same way. But it usually started because someone down below said, hey, this is a useful tool. And even though there was resistance to that to begin with, either because of cost or difficulty, when we were talking about lugging around a giant VHS rack of tapes, this might not be practical for every member of an organization, but a video, well, a coach who loves video, I'm thinking about Roger Nielsen back in the early 80s, as a guy who embraced this and made it a tool, he's willing to take that extra little bit of expense and kind of look silly doing it if that's what he thinks. You give it 20 years and suddenly everyone's on board because they realize that what that value is going to be. So I would say it's, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen at that kind of a scale once these things become automatic and non-controversial. I want to talk a little bit about where good ideas come from and maybe the, the concept of diversity. And we've actually done a lot of work on diversity in teams and so forth. And you know, I'll just say there, there are three kinds of diversity. One is social category diversity, so age, gender, ethnicity, and so forth. Second is cognitive diversity, so ways of thinking about the world, mental models, training, personality, and so forth. And then third is a sense of is purpose, your values, which, which you want to obviously have a consistent um, set of values. I, found, I read an interesting statistic recently that almost every general manager in, in Major League Baseball in the 70s and 80s was a former player. And today, something like 40% of GMs in Major League Baseball are, are Ivy League graduates. So we've had this ex extraordinary and sort of a generation or generation and a half watershed change. So here's the question. Will diver First of all, how open will organizations be to introducing, uh, welcoming new ideas? And each of you actually has very interesting unusual backgrounds, not necessarily hockey-specific backgrounds. And, um, you know, the other interesting tread in other sports is that there were sort of fans just doing interesting research. And the teams would see that that fan was doing something valuable and they would bring him, bring him in-house. So what are, the, what are the trends, like where are the good ideas going to come from, I guess? Maybe I'll start with you, Alison, because probably <laughs> it's fun for you. Do you think you, you may have been a... Um, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I keep kind of banging the drum on is everyone's so excited for tracking data, and my question is, that's great, what do I get to see? Right. Um, because, you know, we, we, we are led to believe, of course, that the teams will get it, which, of course, makes sense, but when we talk about this public cultivation and this public understanding of the sport, we don't know that the public is going to see any of this new data, and I think that that hampers a significant part of the community that can generate new ideas and think differently. I think that you know it's it's interesting, and this is an oversimplification. But we don't we don't ask someone who wants to play hockey to go out on the ice and play hockey professionally. They have to train, they have to go through some practice, they have to prove they're able. But we don't employ the same process and approach necessarily with our front offices um, and our scouts and our analysts, and we tend to stay too in-house. And so I think looking at saying who, who thinks differently than me, who looks differently than me, who's come from a different background than me can only make us ask better questions. And, and to Andrew's point about trust, can only challenge our ideas better. An idea is only made better through challenge. Um, so you need to bring in different thinkers to kind of bang that idea around and say, no, I think this. And ultimately, it will be better because of it, in my opinion. So when I was uh, in my previous life as a professor, I had a lot of students who would come up to me and say, hey, I want to work in sports. Can you help me out? Uh, I, even not professionally, even just, hey, I want to do a project in it. Because as it turns out, it's a really good way to get people to do math, is to convince them that it's fun. And it can be. Uh, I think there's enough people in the first three rows here that I know who started with a similar background there. Um, the people that I met there were largely I'm going to say a little bit privileged because I was at a very good university. But there was a fair number of people who were 
who were just interested and wanted to dig in to some degree. And it helped from my perspective to kind of bring them into our world and help and have them all work together and introduce them in various ways and then to get a multi-tier, full-on multi-level marketing scheme going because I had, I had grad students who then supervised other people and that grad student now is two Stanley Cup rings, so good for him. Um, the way that we were generating those kinds of ideas was making sure that there was that community. And now the students who want to do that are building their own communities. So uh, Carnegie Mellon in particular has a sports analytics group that has now put on their own conference a few times. They have done, they have sent a number of people to pro teams uh, in working capacities. I know at least a f the three or four students of mine who got job offers, uh, but chose to make a living instead of have fun. At the time, that's just the way it is. Sports tends to pay little because everyone wants to do it. Um, as far as getting those as far as that momentum goes, it really helped to have the academic space so that people could then establish their own community. And that's really something that's going to continue at that level. I hear about more and more analytics, sports analytics groups popping up at universities all over the place, um, largely because the, the, they want to do it. They're driving it almost entirely themselves, and they're reaching out to people like me for, for faculty support. Can we get a room? Sure. How's Thursday at 4.30? Okay. That's the, that's the minimum that I can do to make that work, and they'll just go and do it on their own for a lot of that. So I want, we'll finish up, uh, we, we have some questions from the audience too, but I want to finish up, up a bit on um, communication. Maybe Dominic, I'll turn to you on this. Um, what is, um, so first of all, like, you're, you're going 40 second shifts. You're going really fast. Um, so I don't, you, you don't want to be thinking too much probably, I would imagine, but you want to be very prepared. So what is the most effective way for this information to get into your, mind as a player, how, how does that work? Is there a way to make it, make, you know, say Andrew's give a story, you're coursing, you just come down and take a dumb shot, right? That's not going to work. So how, how does this get, get from high level, we know this works, at least statistically, down to we're going we're gonna to change how you think about approaching the game as a player? Uh, another great question. I mean, again, you're, you're, you got to separate team strategy from, you know, the individual's approach to, you know, doing his job. Um, you're absolutely right. As a player, less thinking the better. The more you can play on instinct, the better you can be. So I think it comes down to preparation beforehand. And, um, you know, the more you can prepare, then, you know, in theory, the less you, thinking you have to do. It just becomes a little bit more automatic. And that should apply at the individual level and then also at the, you know, systems level. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of how that's communicated, I think, I think that's an ongoing question in terms of, you know, the, the teams that have more robust analytics groups, you know, I think they're trying to figure out how to, you know, communicate that with the players, what to share with the players, how to share it with the players, you know, what's going to be helpful to players and what's not, because I think in a lot of cases it, it won't be, because um, less thinking the now, better. You, you may have been more on the more on the cerebral side as a player, would you have welcomed that feedback as you? And, and I guess a related question to that is, how much do your practices actually align with actually what you're supposed to do in the game? So when you say you want to, you want it to be instinctive, it's because you've pr practiced a lot, so you know what you're going to do in the game situation. So are the practices sufficiently accurate? Yeah, I mean that's the the coach's job is to prepare the the practices accordingly to that the results come. But I can tell you as a player, you know. You know, I was, there was one team I was on where they posted, you know, after every game, each player's coursey, and it was not popular. <laughs> and, you know, you can understand why. Cause it, and at the end of the day, how helpful is it? It might have been helpful from a motivation standpoint that you don't want to see your name in the, in the red every night, but uh, 
in terms of a player figuring out how to play better, I'm not sure it was that productive. So I think teams are figuring out what to communicate and how to communicate it. It's interesting because when I was in New Jersey, I spent a considerable amount with the players and I think a lot of that is very player specific mm -hmm. because, and maybe there's some selection bias in that the players who spoke a lot to me were the players who were interested in that sort of thing. But I mean, yes, like I think it comes down to the communication aspect of that. But my experience was that players were really, really interested in this stuff. They were, I mean, they're competitive people. They want to know what's going to help them get an edge. Also, they tend to be just like hockey buffs. They like talking about hockey. They like talking about like, well, hey, what are you looking at? You know, like, oh, really? What do you think of this player? You know, uh, oh, really? Yeah, I love the way he does this with his stick and blah, 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 blah. So I think it can be, it very much, very much can be um, shared and communicated with the players, but it's probably, I guess, a question of how you do it. You know. I completely agree, yeah, with that last point. And, you know, there is, some, there is some talk, like in baseball, they have this concept called the conduit, right? So an ex-player may not have been a superstar, but a player that knows the game, has been in the locker room, knows how, the, how it works, uh, but is also versed in some of the analytics and can be an effective translator. So respected in the locker room, but also respecting the analytical department sort of way to, to communicate that. And I, I think, Sonny, your point on selection bias, there's no question. It's, it's, there's a gamut of players of, of, from interest, a lot of interest to basically no interest. Mm -hmm. I've got a couple uh, questions. Some of these, Andrew, might be, uh, might be for you, and they may be yes, no. So we'll, we'll try to do these fast. And wait Bang them out. <clears throat> Will there be any physical um, changes to the puck, weight, size, material, with the new tracking system? It is being deliberately designed to be as close to the original puck as possible. I think this has been already, um, I think Alsa brought this up, but will any of the player tracking data be available to the public at any point in the foreseeable future? <laughs> as a, plea, a plea from Allison as we do this. SMT has a contract with the NHL to produce this data, and they are the rights holders. We do not have any say or, or, or sway in what the public gets, or even what the Oh, you have sway. I might have a little bit of influence, but it, it's from these guys, not from any other kind of power. Well, this is, this is kind of a stats question. I don't know, or maybe Allison, you'll know this one. Uh, which is less sustainable over time? So like less persistent, probably statistically. An outlier shooting percentage or an outlier save percentage? Which regresses faster? Players take fewer shots than goalies uh, make saves. So it's got to be shooting percentage if you're looking at just an, the N. Because the N is smaller, so there's the more N. variance. Yeah. Um, are teams, uh, this is a longer question, are teams prepared for this influx of data from player tracking? <laughs> in no. other words, it, so, so, so Andrew, we're going to assume that event, this is going to go to the NHL teams. Like you said, it used to be video, everybody got video. Now we're going to all have tracking. For those of you watching from home, I'm looking at uh, probably the best equipped teams in the NHL right yeah. now. Uh, there aren't many. Um, the, level, the level of complexity of this data coming in is pretty strong. Uh, that's not to say that there aren't parts of it that a team could adapt to, but I think in order to get the full connectivity, they need a lot more horsepower. Most teams are going to need a lot more horsepower than they currently do. Mm -hmm. Or outsource it. Or, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, have, and be asking the right questions. Yeah. Because it's very, very easy to get lost on one yeah. stat. You could have 20 thoroughbreds working with your data, but if you're asking the wrong questions, you've wasted all that time. Yeah. And Dominic, just given like what, you know, sort of watching the analytics moving out of the corner of your eye, is there anything you wish you had known or been aware of when you started your career, or even in college, going back to college, that you think would have been helpful in either making you more effective, increasing your longevity, or, or whatever? 
Uh, not so much. <laughs> that's it. I mean, again, off the top, you know, on the spot, that's a tough one to answer. Um, you know, I don't know if I have a good response on that. Well, let me ask you this. One. So when a team, when a team does acquire you, I mean, there's some interesting stuff for, for example, in other sports in basketball or baseball, they'll say, we brought, in, you know, they'll bring them in, they'll go, uh, well, your pitch mix is way off, and we know if you change your pitch mix, you'll be more effective. Or in basketball, like we think your defensive abilities are undervalued. We we think we can put you to work in a way that's more effective. Did you get some of that when you came in? And should they say like, here, Dominic, welcome to the team. We think you're particularly good at this, that, or the other, um, and and we want you to do more of that thing. Or is it more like they sort of know who you are? You're a known commodity. You're whatever, leader in the locker room or whatever it is? I think it depends. If you're an entry-level player, then there's more of a focus on development. If you're a, a veteran player and you've been acquired by a new team, you already kind of established your role and what you do, and you're kind of brought in as a puzzle piece to fit into a need. And so there isn't as much of a, you know, hey, I want you to throw your curveball more often, like, you know, you're alluding to. Um, that's not to say that there couldn't be the, those kinds of situations. And to a large degree, you know, Las Vegas is probably a good example. You're taking a lot of guys that were maybe undervalued and they were put in a different situation and showed their value. Uh, and, and this is actually for all of you, especially if you work for the, with NHL teams. Do you think that there is opportunity to do more player development at l lower levels, for example, AHL? And sort of get a young player and and see what uh, what he's missing to uh, and, and really tailor specific um, development to that that individual. Yes, undoubtedly. Because so, yeah. not doesn't not not much of that's probably happening now. Or oh, a lot of it's just expense. Um, teams will probably employ one or two or three people who's tasked with player development who will travel. Like a lot of the issue is players who are drafted young stay in junior for a couple of years before going to the AHL team, and you have no control. Over, over their training habits or, or their usage or any of that. Once they get to the AHL, you get a little bit more of that with the coaching staff there. Um, the opportunity is just not there because the rules say you can't do it. Um, that's not to say that there aren't also options for putting players. There's also like the ECHL, the, the AA level equivalent right now, which is usually just a dumping ground for goalies and maybe players you don't want to have on your team that much. I know that it's at the very beginning of other organizations starting to use this as a, a possible development tool where, where the stigma of being in this place is not there, and that's the biggest personal obstacle. So anything on that? Yeah, I mean, he brought up an interesting point, which is that there happens to be kind of this strange contractual situation where, you know, you're not allowed to take drafted players and put them in on your minor league team, depending on their age, which is, you know, I've been puzzled by this for a long time, and maybe it'll change at the next CBA, but it does, it's somewhat limiting to what you can sort of do when you know you're sending this player that you just drafted back to another time zone with another team with with people that you have no control over whatsoever so yeah you might have a couple development coaches that go and check in with the player and maybe give some advice and have a plan and stuff but it's really difficult to exert too much uh influence under the current rules i mean i i was faced with the choice when i was in college whether to come out early and or not and I think teams are facing that question a lot are they and it depends on every situation you know if it's if the players with the college team where the the organization really believes in the coaching staff at that college they may be better served staying in school and sure. developing there versus playing on the you know in the minors or whatever so I think it's on a case-by-case -case basis. So like with that we're out of time so please join me in thanking our panelists for a great discussion.
This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.